Hello, welcome to another episode of the Running Podcast, sponsored by Envy. This week, we've gotten a full-length interview with Jess Halliday, who talks about her current life training in Sweden, her life as a teacher and training alongside that, and what it is like at the moment for Orienteers training amid the coronavirus in Scandinavia. Firstly, Catherine, I suppose, actually, let's start with, with what you've been up to and the virtual lag and Lear. Yeah, so Lag and Lear, as many people will know, is the tour that's held for 14-year-olds across the UK. Yeah, obviously we can't actually have it at Lag and Lear uh, in Scotland at the moment, so we've kind of done a little virtual few days. It's very different, of course, and it's weird seeing like a, a group of, you know, juniors all in the bedrooms or someone's in their garden and... Um, We've, we've been working hard to try and plan something that's hopefully going to be engaging and people learn from and all that kind of thing. So we've already showed a little video from some of the elites, which Will, you uh, gladly, uh, kindly sent um, in your video for. And yeah, we're just at the start of the week at the moment. So fingers crossed we don't have too many technical problems going forwards and people kind of enjoy themselves and really like get to know each other as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Lag and Lear, I think, is quite a formative part of any young orienteers uh life and career certainly for me it was where i made a lot of friends with um people i'm still friends with now and uh live with at university and really is the kind of it was a, it's, it's i mean it's a fantastic way to keep people involved in the sport at a young age when you suddenly get those those friendships from people all across the country and mm-hmm. um yeah kind of gives you that buzz for it and, and i dug out my old lag and Lear <laughs> top as well which still does not fit so anyone who remembers the original lag and Lear tops that i think they discontinued them in about 2008 2009 yeah, yeah, um yeah. big baggy diagonal colors um i went in 2009 and it was still a bit oh but the ones this year the ones of the last three years have been really really good and actually in the interview coming up jess halliday um unprompted talks about how much she loved Lagunir. But I think it's also still very important to say, like, Pippa Dakin is coaching on Lagunir this year. She never actually went as a junior. If you don't go, that doesn't mean you're not going to be a great orienteer in the future. So, yeah. Aside from that, there has actually been some orienteering on. And orienteering is returning to the UK officially as of August the 1st. Oh, you say returning to the UK though, Will, and oh, well. it's actually return- returning to England then, and there's different guidance Sorry, for yes. like, other um, home nations, as you would say, different times. So why don't you give us a lowdown of kind of how, how these events are going to, in England at least, are going to work and the differences between what people will experience, because there are quite subtle differences between uh, the different home nations. Yeah, so I haven't managed to look through all of the home nations. I've mostly been looking um, at the English ones, which came out first, and a little bit at the Scotland one. And a lot of it seems, I think, kind of what we would expect in terms of disinfecting SI, SI units and kind of when you're collecting them in and when you put them out, and especially things like start, finish, clear, and check, like making sure they're disinfected very regularly. Pre entry, pre registration, pre payment, so that's all done. Um, you don't have to get in contact with anybody um, in terms of that, physically face-to-face. Um, and things like no results being displayed and courses planned appropriately, so linear or school courses. And definitely the, the Scottish guidance has more details in terms of like making sure the first couple of controls aren't shared um, between courses to make sure people get really get split up. Um, but I think the, the kind of the guidance that is going to be people are going to see a lot or that's really going to define a lot of the events is like how many people can go so in england it it's 10 starts per 15 minutes and that is from a single start location um and only one per minute so you can't have two people starting per minute uh but you could have two different start locations and scotland it's 30 people per hour and this will you know is having a big old start box two by two boxes and making sure it's all kind of formally done and people having um start times as well i think it's going to be really interesting to see how clubs take that guidance forward because i think there's a lot of scope to kind of 
have a few different options in there. You could have several different start locations. You could have a couple of hours start window, in which case you could only have, so two hours start window is 80 people, and then you've got to kind of do a pre-entry for 80 people. Who do you have? Is it just in your club? Is um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how kind of clubs have that. And then interesting to see how that's going to, guidance will change as kind of as we go forwards um because if i'm thinking 40 people starting in an hour um military event that i would go to on a wednesday can easily have 400 people in it that's a 10 hour start window Mm. or it's several locations so yeah what do you make of it will well i was going to say yeah as as you're um talking there i'm assuming that clubs are going to cap the number of entries that they're going to have um, for mm. any of these because like you say for a midweek evening event which I'll assume that maybe they'll put more of them on to spread things out or maybe run the event twice in the week mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. um, and they could have two um, separate blocks of people is an idea but I'm assuming they'll have to cap it at say you know we're, we're going to have a three hour start block I think that <laughs> interestingly sometimes on some of the courses it's uh, it gets a bit too roadblocked anyway with with the starts and having that space will actually probably be quite nice for people on some of the busier courses. I think it's it's a good idea. I don't as long as the officials are safe and they're not kind of mm. put under any pressure and they don't have to go and um, hand a box to someone to punch you know, directly in front of them and um, it's all respected and people don't uh, kind of throw up too many issues and demand to move forward in the start box if they just feel like going a bit earlier yeah, I, th- I think it's all uh, it's all good really mm. um, and I th- well I think th- these events are going to have to start off with pretty few numbers of people if you're going to have any any huge numbers going I think it's going to put quite a big strain on volunteers whether that's setting up multiple start locations or manning a start for <laughs> many hours yeah. um, and dealing with a lot of people then i think that is going to put quite a lot of, of strain on them yeah and i think we've got to remember there's a vast amount of volunteering people who will go to these events who are in at-risk groups as well so maybe it's the fact that if you if you want to play this on the start list you've got to volunteer at an event as as part of the series um mm. and give back to the club a bit more to to earn a spot in a shorter start list which maybe will incentivize more people to help um I know that yeah. maybe from a selfish point of view, I don't help as much as I should in planning events. Um, and that probably get me to do a bit more. So, yeah, maybe that's an option as well. You know, we'll be looking at some of the, the first events to see how people are doing it. And I'm sure like lots of different clubs are kind of networking to, to figure out what they think is going to be best practice for this. But this, the whole guidance kind of rests around it being six people meeting up at one particular point still being social distance so if you're looking forward when it's more people asked to meet up that's when uh, it'll change but i guess if you know if you're looking at planning a, a much bigger event you know if you're planning something in october november do you go right well it might be still six people but we might be allowed 30 people together or we might be allowed 50 people together so you, you've got to almost keep keep it very flexible well, hopefully it just all goes smoothly and this will just be a continuous pathway through to having normal events back. But there are a few clubs who have already got kind of summer series up on the BOF fixtures list. I wonder how far people are going to travel as well for an event. Mm-hmm. That's, going to be, that's going to be interesting. See who can travel <laughs> the furthest to, to go to an event. I bet some people will put in a big shift. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. And speaking of people um, putting in big shifts and, and grouping together and doing some orienteering there's been a lot of training going on in Idrifjall up in um, northern Sweden there's um, training camps going on there at the moment for the Swedish national team and there's a couple of Brits out there in the form of Zach Huds, Pete Hodkinson and Hector Haynes um, and if anyone's been seeing the maps greatly encourage you to go and look at them because it looks like stunning oh stunning gosh, yeah. mountain top terrain beautiful open forests so if, you, if you're looking for a little bit of an orienteering fix still go and have a look at those maps because they look really really cool moving on to uh to the uk elite scene though since we mentioned a few um Mm -hmm. uk elites just Mm -hmm. there there is rumors and i'm going to spread them (laughs) maliciously here 
that the UK Elite League is going to be putting out a press release next week or the week after of the events that are going to contribute to the league this year. One of these races, or a collection of them, may be held overseas, possibly in the Czech Republic. It's possibly going to form part of the Euromeeting competition, which is scheduled to be held at the end of October, start of November, which is the Czech Federation's preparation races for WOC next year. yeah. Absolutely. So anyone who's got a slight little inkling that they want to go for the the World Champs next year, you can double your money and go and get some UK Elite League points as well and aim for that prize money at the end of the season if mm, all of the flights. events go ahead. Yeah. Book your flights, get over there, get some racing in because I think they're going to be pretty awesome races. I'm certainly planning on going if I can. Well, they're going to be so rammed. Like. Yeah. The names, the talent who are going to be there and the prep for next year's World Championships in that limestone pillar, gorgeous terrain, steep, very intricate with all the crags. Yeah, it's going to be a really, really good opportunity. I really want to go now as well, like, just because I miss watching people race. I think everyone everyone should get out there and just, and just give it a crack. I mean, it's somewhere that... Um, is really it should be on people's bucket lists to go in orienteering because it's amazing terrain just to to be in and navigating and running because it is really beautiful you're you're really selling this will you've gone to a lot of effort that what what, what i'm not telling you is that i've been paid a lot of money on the side by the czech oh. federation to, oh, <laughs> to promote I see. it i see where's my cut ah oh, yeah it's it's you know it's in the post Ah, I Don't see. worry, it's in post. I'll, I'll be I'll be watching the the front door for. A week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and speaking of you know, going overseas and orienteering, we'll now dive into our interview with Jessica Halliday. So Jess is a seasoned British international, having competed at four world champs with a best of fifteenth in the middle distance. Vastly experienced and has been living over in Falun in Sweden now for a few years, working part-time as a teacher over there. But I won't say any more and I'll leave you to hear from Jess and how she got into the sport and what she's doing now. So thanks, Jess, for joining us on the podcast. Um, First of all, tell us where you are and currently what are COVID restrictions like for you? Hey, yeah. Uh, I'm living in Borlänge, which is a couple of hours north of Stockholm in Sweden. Restrictions for us, we've been a lot more kind of free to move around and things than in Britain. The biggest things probably affecting us at the moment is we can't be in groups of more than 50. Mm -hmm. So 50 is the maximum, uh, which obviously makes orienteering competitions and things difficult. As of about two weeks ago, we were allowed to now travel around Sweden, which we couldn't do since kind of February until Mm -hmm. then. Only kind of um, necessary travel. Um, It's quite interesting because in Sweden, they they very much go on kind of trust. It's all recommendations. So it's very much on kind of trusting the population to do what is recommended, which obviously have been sticking to as much as possible so are people generally doing what's recommended it seems so actually um it seems so from here like i have quite a few friends depending on like how you work some people are working from home only places that are necessary to kind of keep open to keep going have been Mm -hmm. open i don't think people have been traveling around nearly as much but now it's the summer holidays and we're allowed to travel more suddenly it's people are looking to see like whether you can have some training camps and things like that. (laughs) Definitely. So you're a school teacher. How have restrictions affected you? Because obviously in the UK, a lot of, you know, most kids have been off school. Yeah, that's been very different. Um, Sweden have been very um, keen just to keep schools open from like about, oh, equivalent to about sixth form and older they've been uh doing online learning mm-hmm. uh but for what they call kind of good school like the the main schools they've all been open the kind of head teacher had the right to be able to shut if there was you know whether it was an outbreak or a serious problem with kind of staff becoming sick 
mm-hmm. but actually nearly every school in Sweden has stayed open. We've had, at the beginning, it was very difficult because everyone was obviously incredibly worried. Mm. Uh, so we had a lot of students off. And also we have to be, we're not allowed to go into school staff or students if we feel at all unwell. And then after that, you have to stay off for like two more days for when you are well before you mm-hmm. go back. So it's been quite difficult with kind of staff, staffing. Mm. My school has been absolutely amazing with covering, like getting other like supply staff in. So we haven't had to do too much extra, which has been incredible. But we have been doing quite a lot of like online learning to help the students. Those that maybe parents are really worried or maybe have somebody really sick in their family who haven't been coming into school. Yeah. So we've been kind of doing a bit of online learning at the same time as normal teaching. So, And also keeping the kids kind of calm and trying to educate them in a calming kind of way as well. So. It's been yeah. a it's been a bit different this spring, kind of, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and I guess you know that that puts you a little bit more risk of you know you're just coming into more contact with more people than than other people would be who work in different jobs. And I guess then you're maybe coming in contact with people training as well. Absolutely, um, and I've had to think about that a lot actually. That there's other people that are not going into work and really not seeing people, so mm. it's not very fair for me to be you know seeing. Well, like hundreds of people every day and then I go into training I've been kind of trying to take some extra care to not be uh, close by people or whatever and it's like at the beginning it was really really worrying like being at school and you kind of thought oh should we be open should we be not but at the end of the day you just have to go with what the you know you trust like the government and who's making all the decisions and just do your best washing hands and trying to yeah stay away from it as much as we can yeah well I mean yeah very different as you know I think a lot of us have seen in the news Sweden's almost taken the completely different route to a lot of the rest of Europe but um which helping now for traveling like other places (laughs) no one wants us well I'm I'm feeling the same about the UK why are people opening up um travel corridors to Spain for the UK when we've got you know now I can go to Spain and I don't have to quarantine when I get there and probably not when I get back and I'm thinking do people want do why does Spain want people from England here anyway (laughs) um yeah yeah, we could I'm sure we could talk about that for ages but it's not all about coronavirus so without coronavirus time so how do you balance the kind of school and training and um with with all that I guess you're you're on you said you're on some holidays now so it must be a lot easier but in in regular term time so I work 80% so this year I've worked kind of Monday to Thursday. So I've had like a three day weekend. Nice. Um, and that's been wonderful because I still have, oh, I still work quite a bit, maybe Fridays and things, but it's meant that like four days in a row, it feels like you can then get a bit more recovery and then having a three day weekend means that you can either travel, supposedly for races, although I haven't now <laughs> used that yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's pretty good for training to be able to train enough over the three days and feel kind of fresh in some ways going back to work on Monday uh, mm. so that's been really good and I'm going to be working 80% again next year also my uh, my school is wonderful because my head teacher um, is an ex-Olympian wow, wow. oh wow she raced uh, ski cross so she completely understands the kind of elite sport mindset um so that's really really good you, i feel like i have their support um, which is wonderful that's fantastic yeah she's a pretty inspiring inspiring woman so. <laughs> <laughs> does she ever dive in and tell you you're not training hard enough on the days <laughs> off <laughs> no we haven't had we, we haven't got that gotten that close but yeah <laughs> so we've had some good conversations so, about yeah. different things that she used to do and stuff for mm. training and yeah but that sounds kind of perfect in that because then you've got enough work time to de-stress from the training and have something else to focus on and I think like I mean especially with the virus this year actually has been um, like of course I've thought about it but it's also like between training and work you know I didn't have a lot of time to sit in because the worst thing for me with the virus is not being able to come back to Britain see my family Mm. And that's been really tough. But actually between training, you kind of throw yourself into things to kind of, which I know you have to stop and think sometimes. You don't want to (laughs) just ignore everything that's kind of going on. But it's actually also quite nice sometimes. that Nope, I've got lessons to plan. I've got, you know, grading to do and training to go and do and things. So, yeah, it's kept me occupied both physically and mentally. 
Yeah, and has has this been a good time? Because I think I was reading some of your attack point and you looks like you've had a bit of a knee injury in the last couple of months. So there's this maybe with lack of races been a good time to be able to properly recover from that. Yeah, it's been like, you always have to look at the positive. Like sometimes it can be hard to find positives in situations, but um, I actually, this knee injury, it's ridiculous. I had it a bit from about February last year and it's just been kind of niggling on. Oh. And I've never really properly addressed it. And then now it's like, right, you know, you don't have any races coming up. Maybe now is the time to just to really focus on, you know, getting stronger and getting over this knee. I'd hit it at a competition back like February or March last year. And it just seemed to like different things were wrong with the knee and things. So now I've been to see some different types of physios and um, have a coach who I started working with in November. So he's really helping me to getting fitter, getting stronger whilst also letting my knee recover and get well again so yeah hopefully I'll come out of this kind of stronger and well-rounded so yeah so day to day with that or week to week with that injury what are the differences you've made to your training or to kind of your weekly schedule in order to address that and get stronger enable the recovery so the main thing is my knee it seems to start to hurt at the moment it's like after an hour or so of running so Mm -hmm. I'm not doing any long running sessions I'm also doing most of my harder sessions on the cross trainer which I've never really used before but I managed to really kind of leave everything at the gym <laughs> like, it's, it's a really hard session so it's funny kind of trying to get off the cross trainer and walk to the changing rooms but um, <laughs> really tough. Uh, so I found a kind of strange love for the cross trainer and then I've been doing longer stuff more just out on the bike but endurance at least kind of running endurance although I'm not doing lots now that's kind of always been a bit of like one of my strengths mm-hmm. so I don't feel too concerned about not it's more that I love it and I don't get to do it at the moment like I love going out for long runs and that's not what I'm able to do at the moment but but then also my knee seems to really like soft to, like ground so orienteering is wonderful for it so I've been doing more orienteering than like I've hardly run on like tracks or roads and stuff so this morning was a marsh interval session which oh. is really wonderful. It's so like <laughs> it gets your muscles going in different kind of ways. But it's also over thirty degrees warm at the moment. That was quite how, nice marsh. <laughs> I was going to say, how damp was the marsh? It was actually pretty wet. Um, oh right. I only lost, nearly lost my shoe a couple of times, but you know, most of the time it was, it was perfect actually. Like you could still run at a decent kind of tempo and run hard without kind of sinking in. Uh, but it was quite refreshing still. Mm. So. How often do Swedish clubs do marsh intervals? Because it's something you hear about a lot. And kind of, I think, was it Jörg Lassell did a lot of them just before walking Scotland um, to get fit from an injury. But how often do you guys actually do it over there? Um, I think it's a bit more individual and probably individual different to clubs as well. Like I, that was, <laughs> it was the first time I've done them at all. Um, oh, right. <laughs> but then actually I was just chatting to some friends. They were like, oh, that's what we're doing for our Tuesday training this week. But I think depending where you are, and like we've got this, there's where I ran today, that's you can warm up from the club hut to it. But I guess you'd have to drive a little bit further out to other places to go do more marsh running. So I think it's very much depending on the club. I think it's also a very good thing if you've had some injuries and things. And also, Yerkley Solo was saying before Scotland, the ground here is mostly quite hard, like the rock is never very far below the surface. And I think I remember them saying that like Britain to them is really, really soft. So I think it was quite oh, really? kind of in preparation for Scotland. Yeah, which oh, I hadn't okay. really thought, like, I'd not really thought about that so much. But I guess here the rock is never that far below. You know, you don't sink in very much in the ground here. It's never that far below the surface, it seems. That's true. Um, yeah. I hadn't thought so about I it that way. Yeah, so I think to train those specific muscles with you know picking your legs up out or something it's uh yeah it's quite good mm, interesting i always kind of like wonder and i'm really interested in, in the the club setup in scandinavia especially you know most of our listeners are in the uk you know they're used to doing whatever they do in their uk clubs but actually in some ways the scandinavian setup is is quite different so just how would you kind of explain those differences and and what you do in, with your club um, I guess the main, the really big difference is that we have this obviously central meeting point. We have the club hut, which I'd say is the thing that kind of stands out as a big difference. And then uh, there's all the kind of different trainings for different ages that kind of 
meet up from the club hut. Since February, since the virus came, we have not actually been inside the club hut, um, but we still do meet there, but meet in kind of different groups. So like none of those groups are bigger than 50. You know, you have all the different ages, like the ones, the toddlers who do kind of forest play, um, all in different ages up until uh, more of a kind of senior group. And so that's lovely. So that's kind of like the kind of social, you know, seeing everyone there every week. Other than that, it just there's, there's just so many more people that are there. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there's just so many of them. But then that's actually also then been a, more difficult with with the virus, and we're only allowed to have up to fifty people meeting. Is that you can't actually, you know, with these same restrictions, say back in my club in Scotland, you could actually still have had events and things because you could have events for less than fifty people. But here, you can't really. Like some people have tried having some events where you kind of sign up for different start blocks. So you kind of have only up to 50 people in within a couple of hours and then, you know, another 50. But that's been, yeah, I guess that's quite an organisational nightmare. Yeah, otherwise, other than that kind of club wise, I guess it's that kind of really weekly, weekly training with people that always happens. Certainly from here, each club doesn't put on so many events. But then all, I guess this can be different in different places in Sweden. But like in this town in Borlänge or city, there's like quite a few clubs. So we kind of concentrate on, it seems we've got on one or two weekends a year of events. But then if everyone does that, there's still quite a lot of events kind of close by. But you kind of put people put in quite a lot of effort into their events. So that you know, you have to have even small events are actually quite big here if that makes sense, you know, like kind of numbers of people and like the infrastructure, whether it's showers and all of these things that we don't get at kind of British events so much. Yeah, no, that that, that kind of that kind of makes sense. Yeah, um, so it's more on a weekly training, yeah, weekly training and then, yeah, bigger events. Yeah, because yeah, I guess what we don't do much here is, well, it feels me, some of the clubs that kind of I've been around seen is doing that actually doing training like all of the orienteering that you do with your club is a is a course it's a race or it's a competition even if it's a really small competition but you never really do that much training I think that's maybe seems to me to be a big difference yeah although um back in Scotland my club Basok we were actually doing more I'd say more kind of Scandi style kind of we were having kind of Tuesday nights training you know really focused on training which I really really liked Let's go back to kind of you growing up doing oh how did you get into it and you you growing up in the same region as Will in the West Mids yeah whoop, whoop. West is best <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, yeah I grew up in um, Coventry Warwickshire and Octavian Jubers was my kind of home club uh, my parents they my dad I think they're going to tell me I got this wrong but no I think it's not right um, my dad had done orienteering as like an exercise in the police force they kind of enjoyed it but didn't think I don't think thought so much more of it until he met my mum and they were together and wanted to do something um, to keep fit and they started orienteering and there's quite a lot of speak to them there's quite a lot of funny stories about them going out with buggies and being out for hours and not really having a clue (laughs) what they were doing but yeah so I've basically been doing it since I was born since very young age if you ask my dad, he says, I'm one of four. I have two brothers and a sister. And uh, we all did orienteering when we were younger. And I know my dad sometimes says, he's like, you know, if you'd have asked me when you were all a bit younger or kind of, I don't know, young kind of teenage and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, who would have been the one that would have carried on with the orienteering? Then I, I don't think it would have been me. Um, oh. At first, I didn't really like it. I was quite scared of going out by myself. Mm. I mean, night orienteering was awful. I was terrified <laughs> of the dark. But then I started, like, I'd meet friends out on a course, like, and just kind of meet people and kind of wander around, like, chatting and, like, yeah, the kind of competitive just didn't seem to really click. And then uh, I went to Lagunia, um as a 14 as a, for the training camp. Mm. Mm. But I only went there as a default because it was uh, Joe Thompson who was meant to be going. 
who was the only other kind of person in my age in the because it was like a girl and a boy I think from every region that you yeah yeah that's right um, but she was going on holiday so she couldn't go so we're like oh well Jess <laughs> do you want to go I'm here, why not? <laughs> and I was so excited it's so funny now because I'm really good friends with her but I was so excited that I was going to actually get to meet Ruth Holmes like, <laughs> like absolute superstar and now we're really good friends it's quite funny I was so excited um, but then after that something clicked Sue and Keith Marsden were amazing they kind of ran the uh, Lagunier then mm-hmm. and after that I think we went to the six days straight afterwards and it was like oh this girl can like read a map now <laughs> it was like and then I went to JHI's that year and it all just suddenly became a lot more fun when I kind of mm. knew what I was doing I guess and yeah quality training in some of the most technical areas in the country it just seems to make some people click into action and just yeah mm. growing up in Coven- <laughs> Coventry Warwickshire like we well, think <laughs> I've become a sprinter in here actually because we basically just ran around kind of parks and mm. um which has its appeal absolutely but quite different to yeah going to Lagunia was just like whoa <laughs> <laughs> and like how did you um how did you cope on the terrain time trial at Lag and Lear, Jess? Because I remember <laughs> I remember going up and just I sucked. I, I was terrible <laughs> at it. I did, but I was also seemingly for someone from Coventry and Warwickshire, I was really not very fast either. So I don't I don't think I did yeah, very well need a same. time trial. <laughs> I, I think I was, I was in the bottom, bottom too on both of them. them. <laughs> yeah, I remember being absolutely same. terrified of it. But then it's like, no, Jess, it's the orienteering in the forest that's that counts. On, like, tried to, and that's actually always something that I've struggled with because I don't. I'm not super speedy, but I seem to be able to orienteer at quite a high kind of running capacity, I think is mm. where I've been able to then do well. Cause it's yeah. not that, yeah, my kind of doing a, any track or, you know, straight running race. I mean, I've improved a lot over the years. I am much better now than I used to be, but I certainly used to get away with it by being able to orienteer well. and. Well, it looks like, because uh, looking back over some of your races, it seems like some of your best couple of results at setting World Championships looks like t- 2017 in Estonia, 15th in the middle and 17th in the long. And all I can remember from that is just how like green it was, <laughs> especially especially the long distance, which was just, it seemed like it was undergrowth up to your waist the entire way around. Yeah, mm. well, in Coventry and Warwickshire, you had to be able to run through like stinging nettles at about a waist height. Yeah, you kind of learn. You learn not to worry about the undergrowth. Yeah, I think those those kind of areas suit me. I think because I think uh, I think some of my best terrain can be when it's it's quite tricky, like contours wise. But there's no rocks. Like rocks, kind of, you know, my ankles and things. I find to I find it quite hard to kind of keep up. Mm. pace and stuff in there but I still quite like it quite technical but yeah um kind of soft underfoot that's my favorite and where there's like no there's no opportunity to switch off because I can get distracted very easily but like in Estonia it's just like there's no way that you could you literally had to just be full you know in that middle race in Estonia it's like you couldn't lose focus there was but you almost didn't have to force yourself to lose focus because there's you couldn't, you know, it was no. just like you're literally reading, reading, reading that map the whole time. It was, you know, it was quite, quite a crazy detailed area. Yeah. I think I'd heard rumours that they'd tried to map it like several times. Um, someone and someone had tried to map it and then it did, kind of didn't work. And then they tried to map it again and then they, they gave it to another person to try to map. And it was just, I it was one of my favourite races to pre-run because it was just so technical and difficult and you couldn't see yeah. anywhere it was fantastic yeah, they'd have had to have mapped it in winter time or something i guess because with all that vegetation there, you know then map again in the summer just the vegetation because you wouldn't really be able to see where all the contours and stuff were going yeah very fun do you have a, a favorite world championships you've been to um because you've done 2015 to 2018 yeah i mean you can't beat a home world champs and that was my first world champ scotland originally the plan was to actually try and you say the plan, like, you know, you can't really plan ever, anything with orienteering because, you know, it's up to you, but also what happens with, you know, other things as well. But I had hoped to go to World Chance before Scotland so that then Scotland was kind of, you know, I'd know what I was doing by then and mm. yeah, how to race well. But actually, I still race quite well in the middle. I think by kind of a bit of beginners, you know, I didn't really know what it was all about, but I felt comfortable in the, in the forest there. And that kind of coming racing... I could hear people 
from about two controls, three controls from the finish, which I remember it was Heather Monroe, I think, that had told me before that, that that's what her main memory was about, you know, kind of hear people screaming for like, mm. you know, a couple of controls from the finish. I was like, whoa, that's <laughs> surely that's not going to happen. And then it did, you know, two, three controls from the finish. It's like, I can hear the crowds already. Like, and that feeling of running down that, um, the running with so many, you know, kind of almost like that tunnel of noise, like, you know, that's not something that is easily beaten or easily forgotten. But then also Estonia uh, running well there. That was really cool. Yeah, I had like, do we have the run through? I remember going through the run through and being on a kind of new leading time and mm. coming into the finish with a new leading time and getting to sit in that leader's chair for quite a while until someone else came in. Um, <laughs> that was pretty cool. Is that is that fun sitting in the leader's chair or is that just nerve wracking? It's nerve wracking, but it's also like, you know, you've got to enjoy these moments because I don't come around very often. So it's like, yes, it was nerve wracking, but it was also like, this is, you know, you deserve to be sitting here. You know, you ran, raced really well, so kind of enjoy it whilst you're... Although as I remember being like really hot and sweaty and kind of wanting to get changed, but you're like, oh, but I can't really get changed. It's like here with everyone watching. So, yeah. and, w- and when you went through the run and if you heard, you know, heard you're in the new leading time, like, what do you do with that information when you've still got, you know, maybe a third of the course left to go? Do you do you try and ignore it? Do you try and use that to spur you on? Oh, it's it's going to sound a bit strange, but almost a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I remember my mum there as well on the side, like shouting at me, but she was just like, "Keep keep the focus, keep the focus." It was like, you know, that's what that's really what you had to do because you were yes through the run and you could maybe switch off for what ten fifteen seconds but straight away after that run through, um, you're straight back into really, really technical stuff. And it was fairly early on. It was like, you know, it wasn't one of these last little loop bits. Mm. You'd actually in Estonia, it was like... It was about 50-50, wasn't it? Oh yeah, because you started up in the north and then went down and then had like a loop in the south, didn't you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that sounds right. And then back out. And then I did actually make a mistake in that second half. And I... I've actually questioned myself afterwards, like, was it, you know, do I think I was affected by, you know, the people, you know, the run-through and what they were saying, mm. but I'm not sure, I think a bit of a lapse in concentration, perhaps. But then you have to, I think, using these things to spur you on, definitely, it kind of helps the adrenaline, but it's like, but also in terrain like that, you just have, you know, it's nothing leading through a, a spectator run-through, you go and muck up so much later that, you know, you end up way down the results list so you have to just you know you know this is good you're doing well but just keep on doing what you're doing i think that that kind of wall of sound as well also as you say when you go through it and then you get to the next phase and it's kind of a bit of spurring on a bit of refocusing because it, the silence is then very eerie once it starts mm-hmm. to drift away and you're in your own little world again it's it i find it quite hard to to switch back over i don't know but it's uh it's, it's a very odd feeling that that kind of sudden silence yeah, it is very strange with that, with it, you know, with orienteering like that, where you have different moments of the course. Where I remember in Scotland, that was one of the, the first things. Was it control number three? I think it was where, um, you know, kind of the start was like way away from the um, arena and things, um, but this is the middle in Dar, and away. Uh, and number one had been quite tricky, really tricky. So number three kind of popped over. It was like complete silence in the forest you popped over and suddenly there's just like it was obviously like a media controlled and I don't know how many like cameras and things that were there suddenly and I was like oh no because I didn't know like I hadn't completely decided my route I was just kind of taking a control at a time hadn't completely decided the route to the next control and then there's like all these camera people there and like you know you kind of expect it at least in the run you know a kind of spectator run through it it's hard to deal with but it's also expected so in some ways you know you kind of trained for how to deal with those but then like out in the middle of the forest when you just suddenly like you know we've been told to you know you might see things out in the forest all this but until you actually suddenly just pop over and they're literally right in front of you um that was a very strange experience then you kind of panic a bit and it's like no don't panic like it doesn't matter if they see you stopping and looking at your map that's quite okay <laughs> yeah. So. well yeah i always guess like seeing the the tv cameras and the running cams particularly out in the forest must be just so distracting yeah, it is, but I find like it used to be more distracting. I think mm-hmm. when it, because they used to, you know, kind of earlier on when I was doing more international stuff, and also that seemed to be more when all of these things were coming out a bit more. 
you know, more TV cameras in the forest and all this. But now, like, yes, it is distracting, but oh, I don't know, I haven't raced at all this year, so I'm sure that'll be interesting kind of if we go back into racing and how it all feels. But you do, you do kind of get used to it. It does become more of kind of a norm and you just get on with what you're doing and find a way to focus yourselves. Like, but yeah, everyone kind of, the, the first time is always a big, a big thing, the first few times. But running your your fir- first walk being in home walk, plan didn't go, quite go to plan in having some previous walk experience before that one. So, I mean, did, did things feel very, like, a different, a whole different scale on that first World Championships? Did you have any advice on kind of how to deal with that much kind of pressure? I mean, or did you feel any pressure at being a home walk as well? I did feel pressure. It's like I think because it was my first walk as well, it was just like, you know, the pressure's not on me. Like the pressure that you I put on will just be like from myself, you know, kind of mm. putting on, which of course like you put pressure on yourself because you want to perform well. And actually a bit of pressure I find can really help kind of motivate you know, I want to feel that it's a big race then. But then also because everything was so familiar as well. I remember it mostly just being really exciting. You know, just it's such a cool opportunity that not very many people get. So you just have to, yeah, go out and make the most of that. I remember speaking to some people before I remember Lorna Eads. She mm. gave me her um, a folder that she'd kept from home walk. Um, so I remember kind of looking through all of that and all her memories and kind of speaking to other people that had done these kind of walks and stuff. And the main message really is just to go, you know, obviously you want to absolutely do your best, but, you know, to try it and enjoy the whole experience as well. So that'll be interesting looking forward to 2024 now, isn't it, with the sprinter? Mm. Well, chance Mm. for, yeah, the up and coming ones for that. I'm uh, hoping to be a spectator instead of that one. (laughs) Nice. Well, my my next question was going to be, have you ever been tempted to, to run more sprints or was it always, was it always kind of the forest competitions that you were enjoyed more or were best out that kind of thing um i enjoy forest a lot more and i wonder sometimes i wonder why i wonder whether it's is it just because you're better at it but i think also like the training as well like a lot of what i love about forest going to is a lot of the training that you like i love training and i don't <laughs> i remember when the sprinters and stuff i i mean oh they're so impressive how they go off into like housing estates and go, you know, training and things. But um, I'd much prefer to head out into a forest and, you know, find a new, new forest, new, different kind of, yeah, different places to train. I've never been that good at sprint orienteering either. I, I'm not, I've never quite managed to work out exactly why. I'm not sure whether it's I'm a, I don't speed up very quickly, whether that's why kind of going around corners. But then I've done a few races and then really surprised myself by how much I enjoy them. But I think that's because I don't do them very much. So I think I need to keep it to not doing them very much. Watching the best <laughs> and cheering them on instead. There's only probably so many housing estates you can see before it gets a bit tire- tiring. Whereas forest, yeah, you just go and lose yourself, don't you? And find a new path or... I, I think it's... You can always probably learn something from the forest as well. Whereas maybe sometimes sprint orienting, you can feel like you're just doing the same thing or going through the motions a bit more yeah it's hard for me to even say to him because I've just done very very few I haven't really done much sprint orienteering you know races Mm -hmm. or training really but it does then make it quite exciting just to go and you know join in with some things sometimes so you know because you can still you can still race pretty you know fairly well um but obviously not get anywhere near the I mean we've got a really really great sprint team um a GB team there Really um, what are your most memorable races for better or for worse do you have some interesting stories we can tease out from you oh gosh probably <laughs> um, i think i was i was reading somewhere about several like flights getting cancelled on the way to races or something like that which i'm um, not a great start to those was that european i think it's europeans 2016 yeah, and then I we ended up, was it me and Graham Gristwood and Emily Kemp? And there are a few of us ended up stuck in an airport somewhere, I seem to remember. Um, <laughs> no, but that was in Stockholm. And Hector, because then we went and stayed, because he lived in Stockholm at that point. 
So then we went and stayed, or we stayed in various different places. I went and stayed with Hector. Um, so we ended up flying out the day after. Or Now, that, that's never very good preparation. No. Um, that wasn't <laughs> ideal. Um, Any other, like, good that? memorable races? Some ones you've had really good experiences at? Any of the relays? Oh, I mean, every relay. I absolutely <laughs> love running relays. Um, yeah, I mean, club, that's one of the things that loved about joining Dom Novice. like racing in relays is like just my favorite thing ever I think it's the added pressure and the added excitement and kind of watching other oh yeah it's like my favorite thing so I'm really hoping they've uh, they're kind of holding on I don't know if you've heard about Tia Mila for this year it was cancelled mm-hmm. kind of like cancelled but then there's um they're holding up or possibly holding it up in Idra which is where the World Cup's going to be next year so there's some plans around there, so that'll be interesting to see if that happens. Um, mm. But talking about Tia Mila, was the first Tia Mila, this is probably my most memorable relay experience, was the first Tia Mila I, I ran with Dom Lava, which is actually the first Tia Mila, I think, that I'd ever run. And that was in 2016. Um, and that was near here in Farland. And it was my first Tia Mila, and I joined the, uh, the first team, having run a couple of good races, like relay races here, kind of, um, the, in the preceding months and I ran first leg and start standing on that start line with everyone with the number one bib on on my first Tia Mila ever it was just it was so terrifying that I just stood there with a massive smile on my face so everyone was like she's so happy but like, I'm just absolutely terrified um, and then that start gun went off and like I don't know maybe not many people know Farland but Farland's like a town where there's it's like a, a they've got a ski um, and so we started basically at the bottom of the ski jumps and going up to the first control, we basically kind of run up what they called murder back end, like the murder kind of climb, like hill climb. So we kind of mm. ran out up there and oh my goodness, it was like, it was really hard work. Had that, that was... long kind of first leg, it was brutal. <laughs> yeah, I remember that climb, it was savage, wasn't it? The pace that some people go out at as well. Yeah, yeah, after um, when the gun shoots and off you go. But then I was so terrified, but managed to hold it together and, and ran pretty well, actually. A few wobbly moments, but ran pretty well. And our team, I think we came to come fifth that year, which is amazing. They'd won the previous year, but I still was. So they might have been slightly disappointed, but I was just like, whoa, I've just come like top 10 even in there. <laughs> it was really exciting. And then the other relays, well, of course, any relays running for the GB team, mm. they're, they're special, uh, really special to be able to run with your team, British top on. It's like... Oh, you can't beat that feeling. Um, there's been a few of them, whether in Scotland, around last leg um, in Scotland. Yeah. Um, awesome, Ghana way. That was pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's a, I think it's amazing how orienteering such an individual sport. Yeah, everybody loves doing the re- like. A lot of people love doing the relay. They love that chance to be able to actually compete with alongside other people in a team. Yeah, and like I guess it's a bit different when it's club versus ring, but you know. You train with these people and yes, they're your, you know, to some extent or mostly, I mean, they're my competitors, mm-hmm. but also like, you know, you also train together and want the best from everyone. And then to actually then get to, you know, perform in a team together, you know, it really, it, it means an awful lot, Yeah. you know, to stand on that starting, you know, to have that trust, you know, trust in your teammates. It's like, you know, we've trained together. I absolutely trust in you to, to run well. And then that kind of bit of like add it on yourself, but is how you use that pressure. Definitely. So I guess so hopefully a Tia Mila coming up. Otherwise, I mean, who knows really what's happening, but what are your future plans for, for, for orienteering for yourself? Ooh, uh, that's a big question. And I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm getting a bit old, so I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Um, certainly this autumn, they're, they're hoping for some Swedish competitions still, but I don't know. I'm uh, not too sure about that. So I'm not holding out too much hope because we still have this restriction on 50 people. And beyond that, I'm not sure. I'd, it's difficult because I kind of thought this year was going to be potentially my last year aiming for international races. But equally, I'm running quite well. I feel like I'm running well and I'm really fit at the moment. It would be a very big shame not to use that. So I definitely have more than an eye on next year, on next year's World Champs and World Cups. I mean, having a World Cup hit in Egypt yeah. Yeah, I've been to a few times now. Um, it's wonderful, kind of summer holiday, um, kind of play. I've been doing some of the summer holiday Idra kind of multi-day events here, mm. and it's an incredible place. So that mm. I definitely have my eyes on that for next year. But at the moment, 
I don't know. I think with so much uncertainty, the certainty that I have at the moment is that I love training and I can still, whether, you know, we've not had any kind of lockdown where we've had to, we've not been able to train out in the mm. forest or, you know, travel to training. So I'm really just enjoying kind of getting fit and, you know, getting in consistent training, which is actually, it's not very often that as an orientee you get to do that during the summer months when it's mm. nice and warm and sunny and things. So I'm just at the moment going to enjoy that and see where that, see where it takes me. World Champs is returning to Estonia, isn't it, in a couple of years? Or is that Europeans? European Champs, maybe. So plenty Europe- of time for some more grot. Yeah, because it's going to be Europeans this year, and that's what I was quite excited about. Mm. A bit of right, right. yeah, this year. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully get to go there, go back there and uh, race there again. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I'm very much looking forward to being able to see some British people again. And, train with, <laughs> come and mm. see family and come and train with some... British people. Will you be... Sorry? I was going to say, will you be back over next year to just dominate the British champs after getting such good quality Forest Owen for 18 months? Well, let's just see. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. That would be good. Oh, it would be great. great to see you there. Well, best of luck. Um, you know, hopefully you can get out doing some racing, doing some relays at some point. And, um, yeah, good luck with therefore keeping uh, getting rid of that knee injury and uh, being fit for for next year's uh, international competition so yeah thank you very much so yeah thank you so that was Jess Halliday thanks again to Jess for chatting to us um, on the run-in um, I'm afraid this week we don't have any answers or questions from Ralph's orienteering conundrum. We he has gone on a well-earned holiday. He's actually been up in the north of. Um, Norway? I was about to say Norfolk. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly different scenery. Yeah. No, he's been up in the north of Norway um, having a great time, doing a a sky race as well, I think. Mm, Incredibly jealous. Uh, For anyone who's um, at a loose end of an evening, go and check out Ralph's Instagram because he's got some great pictures up there of the scenery and, and what he's been up to. But it looks... Really I'm quite so cool and isolated. Yeah, incredibly jealous. Um, I mean, I'm pretty much jealous of anyone who's, who's on holiday at the moment, to be honest. Yes, so, that's, or going that's abroad, true. or is abroad. <laughs> so, I mean, I can't really... I'm jealous Wait, of everyone. Ralph's on a well-earned holiday, um, and he'll be back uh, next time with, with the answers to the previous conundrum and a new one as well. So he's on his summer break, and he'll be back. Indeed, he will. So just before we end, a quick um, thank you to our sponsors. Envy this week. Will, you've been trying out some of their shoes. Been using the Forest 2s this week. They are the rubber-studded version, so no dobs, just rubber studs. So great for all terrains. And used them at a map run event that OD put on. It had been raining for a few days before, so I thought it would be a bit greasy and a bit muddy. And um, they were great. Really good grip around the corners. Didn't feel like I was going to slip over at any point at all. Nice and light and responsive, which is what I personally quite like in a shoe as well. So looking forward to getting them in again, actually, later in the week when I go for another another uh, orienteering escapade. Envy and Straits now have a UK seller in Mary Fleming. So if you want to email her about any of the O-shoes, you can get in touch on NV straight that's N V I I S T R and then the number eight dot UK sales at gmail.com. So NV straight dot UK sales at gmail.com. Uh, and that's where you can get in touch for all, all the NV shoes and straight compasses and straight compasses. But uh, that is it for this episode. Um, I think in another couple of weeks' time, we will be having a little look at some of the first orienteering events to go ahead in England. Don't forget, um, Jess Halliday will be on the run-in sprint as well with all the quick-fire questions, so take a listen to that one in a week's time. But uh, we'll, yeah, we'll be back in the next episode. See you then.